Where did you learn all this, Wesmo? I learned by watching my mother. You know, she died when I was only a teenager, and I missed her so much. I would replay all the memories I had with her over and over in my head, just so I could feel near to her. And so many of my memories, well, they were of her teaching me to cook. So now, I carry them with me everywhere I go. That was just one of the lessons I learned from my wisingmo during kimjang, or the art of making kimchi. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. Today, we're going to tackle a tricky topic, one that's not without its fair share of controversy, cultural appropriation. I'm sure most of you have witnessed a celebrity subject themselves to criticism and perhaps even cancellation for wearing the wrong clothing, hairstyles, or adopting a specific way of speaking. But how about in food? Can and should there be a gatekeeper that prevents access to certain cultural cuisines? And if so, why? These are some of the questions I aim to answer today in an albeit personal way because, well, that's what I do. So, without further ado, let's get into it. I remember the first time I wanted to invite Leah Granger, a blonde, blue-eyed girl from third grade, over to my house after school. I told Amma, and aside from ironing out the logistics, i.e. Leah taking the bus home with me and then having her mom pick her up before dinner, her biggest concern appeared to be, but what about the kimchi? What about the kimchi? I wanted to ask. I soon discovered what she meant, though. Amma proceeded to move all the massive jars of kimchi out of the main fridge in our kitchen to the basement. She was worried about the smell. Prior to Leah Granger, I'd never hosted a non-Asian friend before, and therefore Amma never felt the need to rid the house of the prevailing smells of pickled vegetables, fermented soybean, and seaweed. By then, I was no stranger to the many differences between the Lee family household and the Granger family household, but till that moment, while watching Amma frantically displace the jars of kimchi that Halmanyi had labored over, I'd never thought to be embarrassed of how my home smelled. Of course, at the time, I thought Amma was being, well, a bit of a lunatic. I couldn't smell anything wrong with our home, and I was certain that Leah wouldn't either. But then... Amma told me about how often she'd heard complaints about the smell of kimchi from non-Asian colleagues. I would learn that my father's peers also complained about his kimchi breath at work. And over a decade later, I would taste firsthand the many layers of my parents' apprehension. My sophomore year in college, I took Creative Writing 101. And at the beginning of the semester, Professor Mike suggested that class might be more palatable if we each volunteered to bring something to eat, something to share with everyone else in class. 
Mostly, people brought, you know, the usual bagels and donuts, some cookies. But on my assigned week, I walked into that small classroom in the underbelly of the English building, carrying with me a tray still warm with freshly rolled kimbap. So for those of you who don't know what kimbap is, they're basically like maki rolls, only they don't contain any raw fish. It's rice, vegetables. At that time, I wasn't vegan, so it had a little bit of meat and some fried egg, and it's all rolled in a little bit of roasted seaweed. So I bring my freshly rolled kimbap into class, and I was smiling so hard as I placed the trays in front of me because I was proud and excited to share the foods I knew so well with those who were less familiar with Korean cuisine. But before I could launch into the brief description I'd prepared in my head as I walked all the way from Dorcas, my favorite Korean eatery in Urbana, to campus while carefully handling the styrofoam housing my culinary offering, I heard someone behind me go, ugh. I turned around and saw one of my classmates covering his nose. What? I asked the smile I'd walked in with still frozen in place. God, the smell, he answered. He didn't have any kimbap. That was back in the late 90s. Years later, once Mario Batali introduced the many virtues of pibimbap on the Food Network, I assumed the world had changed. Famous chefs regularly butchered the pronunciation of gochujang, fermented chili paste, while adding it to their fancy menus. And surprise, surprise, fitness influencers couldn't stop talking about all the prebiotic health benefits of kimchi. YouTubers were going viral by trying every different flavor of Korean instant ramyun, and for about 13 days, it seemed the entire world was making chapagetti, the popular instant noodle dish made famous by the Academy Award-winning Parasite. Korean food was having its moment. And thus, despite my parents' fears and my encounter with the rude idiot from my creative writing class, I was once more truly excited to share with everyone my kimchi recipe from start to finish. As I've written about before, there is probably nothing as quintessential to Korean cuisine and in some ways Korean identity as kimchi. Whether or not it's what the rest of the world associates with Korea, it is undeniably what Koreans view as the icon of Korean food. Done properly, it will take hours to prepare, likely turning into a full day's affair. Kimchi, a preserved vegetable, is meant to last throughout the winter months when food no longer grows out of the ground. Therefore, you're supposed to make a lot of it. Think the meal prep of all meal preps, not just for the next few days, but for the next several weeks or months. Not only will it take hours to prepare, kimchi making or kimjang will leave your quads, hamstrings, and glutes sore, as well as your hands a little tingly and red. Because, as I said, we're not talking about salting, saucing, and jarring one lousy cabbage head. My mother bought 80 pounds of cabbage for our supply of kimchi. When you've got that much cabbage involved, there isn't a table large enough to accommodate all the massive bowls your cabbage will be marinating in, nor does it make sense to have your cabbage at chest level. Instead of hunching over a bowl of cabbage for hours, you want the leverage afforded by squatting, hence the kimchi squat, as you press the salt into the tight cluster of yellow leaves and spread the scarlet sauce across each individual leaf. Given the amount of labor involved, 
Is it any wonder that Kimjang is often a community event that's held outdoors where the December frost and neighborly fellowship can serve as respite? For members of the Korean diaspora, kimchi and everything we experience through kimchi, the work, the community, the spice, the smell, and even the shame is wrapped up into who we are. Perhaps at one point in our lives, kimchi marked us as different in that vaguely dangerous way. But even before kimchi grew to be the new superfood, for many of us, kimchi eventually became a badge, one that granted us entry to a club of unspoken solidarity, pride, and yes, power. I dove head first into kimjang when I went vegan because a plant-based kimchi would be the most important barrier to hurdle in my vegan experiment. Having to choose between kimchi and veganism would otherwise place me in the untenable quandary of having to choose between my Koreanness and my values. I watched countless videos of old Korean ajumas, those are Korean ladies, making multiple different kinds of kimchis. I consulted with my mother and her sister, my emo, to discuss how to optimize fermentation and flavor without fish sauce and shrimp paste. I developed numerous iterations of my own fish sauce to use in place of non-vegan items I'd grown up with. In the end, though, it was when I worked with my wesungmo, my maternal uncle's wife, and still the undisputed cook of our family, to develop the recipe for my cookbook, that I learned that the choreography of kimjang is as important to making good kimchi as the ingredients. I would ask her, why can't I just cut the leaves with my knife instead of using my hands? Isn't that easier? And she would say, because then you'll damage the beautiful leaves hidden at the center of each cabbage head, that's why you pull the heads apart instead of hacking away with a knife. Why do we have to use our hands? Can't we just sprinkle the salt, you know, all over the cabbage leaves and like toss the bowl? My hands are starting to burn. Because you need to make sure that the salt gets into the hardest to reach parts of the cabbage, where the leaves come together at the very end, because you can feel it, right, Sanyang? How the leaves are the hardest there? They need the most salt and you can only reach it with your hands. Well, why can't we just chop up the cabbage in advance and then stick them in the jar? We're going to chop it up when it's ripe anyway. Aren't we wasting so much time by rolling all of this cabbage? Because when you roll up the cabbage, just like this, Sanyang, just like this, nice and tight, you're creating pockets of air trapped between the leaves that will make your kimchi ferment the way it needs to if you want it to be delicious. And lastly, where did you learn all this, Wesungmo? I learned by watching my mother. You know, she died when I was only a teenager, and I missed her so much. I would replay all the memories I had with her over and over in my head, just so I could feel near to her. And so many of my memories, well, they were of her teaching me to cook. So now, I carry them with me everywhere I go. In preparation for my book launch last summer, I wanted to make a video that showed everyone all the things I learned about kimchi, kimjang, and even my wesungmo. I hired a professional videographer to shoot a full recipe video, recruited my mother, aunts, and cousins to help make the kimchi, and even considered shooting the video outdoors on my parents' patio. Turned out it was a little rainy that day, so we nixed that idea. 
Amma suggested we use her kitchen island to salt, sauce, and roll. And I looked at her like she was, once more, a lunatic. Why in God's name would we do that? Because your followers, I don't want them to see us making kimchi on the floor. But we've always and forever and ever made it on the floor. And besides, your island isn't big enough. Are you sure they won't think it's strange that we're making food on the floor? I waved her off. No, we're making it on the floor like we always make it. Doing it on the table is ridiculous and no one is going to make fun of us for doing it the way it's supposed to be done. So, you can imagine my disappointment when over two decades after Creative Writing 101, I proudly posted a picture of my mother, my aunt, and me surrounding a massive silver bowl of newly sauced cabbage doing the kimchi squat and someone commented, on the floor... No thanks. My mother is 90 pounds sopping wet. She has osteoporosis, autoimmune disorders, and sensitive skin. She's allergic to everything. As a newlywed, she nearly died from complications arising from her use of birth control pills. She was allergic. She has trouble chopping vegetables for chapche and mandu because of her arthritis, but refuses to use the food processor I bought her. A couple years ago, she slipped and fell on the ice while walking with a friend and broke her wrist and her arm hasn't been the same since. But of all the things that make my mother frail, it's the shame she has internalized over kimchi that inspires a wild fury in me. Not at her, but at those who continue to reinforce her instinct to hide. So what does this all have to do with cultural appropriation? Well, before we get to that, perhaps we should at least attempt to define cultural appropriation. And here I will quote the Oxford Dictionary. Cultural appropriation is the unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, ideas, etc. of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant people or society. Again, the Oxford Dictionary. While this definition is probably technically fine, it's too vague to be of any real use. What does unacknowledged or inappropriate even mean? Are all unacknowledged adoptions of custom practices, ideas of a different culture per se inappropriate? Or, as some would have us believe, are all adoptions, period, of said customs, etc., unilaterally off the table, figuratively and literally? Does there have to be some type of profiteering or other commercial incentive involved for it to be, quote, appropriation? And is it possible, according to this definition, to misappropriate from a historically dominant people or society? And what the heck does dominant people or society even mean? Maybe it's more useful to consider both ends of the appropriation spectrum. On the one hand, there are people who believe it is per se wrong to ever adopt the traditions of a culture that isn't your own, even in the privacy of your own home or at your own event. For example, I saw a video on TikTok of a young white woman wearing a traditional Korean hanbok, Korean costume, out of respect for her Korean in-laws. And she got so much hate in the comments. 
On the other end of the spectrum are those who believe that cultural appropriation is merely a colloquialism of the woke leftist agenda, i.e. something that we just, you know, made up out of thin air so we can collect on the boon of self-victimization. Somewhere between those two extremes exists a reasonable and instinctively fair-sounding description of what most people would probably agree is disrespectful or rude, But I think we need to unpack this a little more to understand that cultural appropriation, even in food, can result in far more than hurt feelings. I'm a lawyer, y'all know this, and I went to law school, and we learn by hypotheticals. So let me give you a hypothetical. Imagine your family owns a small bakery, one filled with all the delicious breads and cakes your grandma made when you were little. And imagine there's a chain bakery across the street, one that spends a good chunk of its seven-figure marketing budget telling everyone how strange and weird and kind of gross your bakery is. It hurts your feelings, sure, but worse than that, it hurts your business. Nevertheless, you stick to it and keep making and selling what you love, your grandmother's delicious baked goods. But then, a few years later, all of a sudden, the chain bakery starts making cheap, watered-down, knock-off versions of the very same breads and cakes they used to claim were weird and not that good. And because their budget is, you know, a thousand times larger than yours, while their costs are far smaller than yours, because unlike you, they didn't obtain the recipe from their grandmother, but rather cut and paste it from so-and-so's food blog. And thus, unlike you, they have zero problems with taking shortcuts to maximize their profit margin. They are able to outsell you, even though their breads and cakes don't taste nearly as good as your grandmother's. Worse yet, now, because so many people are eating the knockoffs, They've been misled into thinking this weird, strange, not real version is the way it should taste. Eventually, you can no longer keep up, and as you shutter your shop and file for bankruptcy, you start to wonder, if I can't compete with chain-made, watered-down knockoffs, what's going to happen in 10, 20, 50 years? Will grandma's breads and cakes still even exist? Or will they get lost between big dollar budgets and the reach of those who have always had more? This seems like an extreme example, I know. However, I think it adequately captures all the necessary elements of cultural misappropriation, i.e. the improper taking of something and not just the mere adoption of a practice that isn't your own. There is and must be space in the world for cultural appreciation, even in the form of adoption. The planet will change. The food growing out of it will change. And the people cooking in it will change. The adoption of and experimentation with different cultural cuisines is a critical component of not just ensuring we can still eat some versions of the foods we've loved, but that we continue to innovate more delicious food. How else can I, as a Korean-American, create vegan versions of Korean food? How else can we, as a society, imprint the evolving progression of our values without trapping ourselves within the shackles of blind tradition? This is why I add gochujang to my red sauce, and I use that said red sauce to make tteokbokki. And yet, I do get angry when I see someone thoughtlessly hacking away with their knife 
at a beautiful head of Napa cabbage. I do get irate when someone comments on my recipe, oh, I can just chop up all the cabbage in advance. The way she does it is a waste of time. And yes, it chaps my hide when I see the same folks who would have turned their nose up at kimchi 30 years ago selling their, you can use paprika instead of kochukaru kimchi recipe because it's now cool to eat this thing called kimchi. So much gets lost with the mass proliferation of cultural cuisine when neophytes masquerade as experts, when food bloggers or celebrity chefs leverage the patina of authority afforded them by large followings or crowded restaurants who have no problem sacrificing other people's stories to make their food more profitable, more palatable to the majority, the one addicted to TLDR content, the one that still believes in its heart of hearts that the right way to do things is the way they've always done them the way most people have always done them. You cook on the table, you use utensils instead of your hands, and if it smells different, it smells wrong. I don't care what you make in your kitchen. I also don't care if you mix and match and try new things. Somebody added tomatoes to my sundubu recipe and I thought it was absolutely brilliant and I was so excited. And I don't really care whether something is quote, authentic or not. Cultural appropriation, i.e. when certain persons or groups leverage their privilege to profit off the sale of someone else's culture without so much as acknowledging it, it results in less delicious food. And yes, there is a sort of violence in this mindless pursuit of profit, one that perpetuates my mother's shame that covers my Wisumwa's soft body and the heavy cloak of silence, that flattens me against the familiar fangs of disappointment when I'm told in so many words once more, sorry, can you please make yourself even smaller to make the rest of us more comfortable? Well, I hope today's episode has given you something to chew on. Maybe some kimchi. (laughs) To be honest, I'm not sure I have all the answers when it comes to this issue. It's an ever-evolving issue, as many important ones are. And perhaps that's why I like to talk about it. There are some very, very strong opinions floating out there, particularly on the internet. And sometimes, because we see things in a tweet or an Instagram comment, we immediately divorce these discussions from the stories underlying them. At the end of the day, I just want to eat good kimchi. And so should you. Speaking of good kimchi, I don't know if you noticed, but literally every single food that I mentioned in this week's podcast, that would be the kimchi, the mandu, the chapje, the kimbap. There are multiple different kimchi recipes in the Korean vegan cookbook. And guess what, guys? It's 50% off. Yeah, it's 50, it, like you can buy the Korean vegan cookbook right now for $18. I know that all of you already have a copy of this book, but maybe your friend doesn't, maybe your colleague doesn't, maybe your mom doesn't, maybe your sister doesn't, maybe your brother doesn't. My sister-in-law invited me over the other day and she had me sign multiple copies so that she could give them all away to my nephew's kindergarten teachers. 
there's an idea. Yeah. So sadly, all of the signed copies at Now Serving LA, they've been sold out. So you can't get those, but you can get an $18 copy of the hardcover 300 some page version of the Korean vegan cookbook with all of these recipes therein. I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. And now we're on to Ask Joanne. So every week I invite newsletter subscribers and podcast listeners to submit questions. They can be about anything. A lot of times they're about love, they're about career, they're about school, they're about studying. This week, I thought we'd tackle sort of a fun question. Simona asks, what are the best vegan spots in Seoul, Korea? What are some accidentally vegan dishes in Korean cuisine? So I can order it in Seoul. Well, Simona, I am so jealous that you are going to Korea. The last time I was there was in 2019, and man, oh man, do I miss it. Here are some vegan spots that I enjoyed immensely on my last trip, and I think you or any of you listening who are maybe headed to Korea would just love. My first and favorite restaurant of all time in Korea is Shindongyang Daebanjum. This is one of those hole-in-the-wall Chinese-Korean restaurants that might seem like a little sketchy, but then knocks your socks off with the best Chinese-Korean food you've ever eaten. They have two menus, one vegan and one not vegan, and I ordered jajangmyeon, and I actually sent it back because I thought they made a mistake and sent me the non-vegan version. Yeah, it was that good. Like, I literally was like, I told you I ordered vegan. And they're like, um, it is vegan. <laughs> it was phenomenal. Their recipe is what inspired my own jajangmyeon recipe in the cookbook. The jajangmyeon is the cover dish. And this place was hands down my favorite restaurant in Korea. Next up is Bread Blue. Towards the end of my trip, I basically planned my entire day around finding a nearby Bread Blue to stock up on more vegan Korean pastries. There weren't a lot of them, but there were enough throughout Seoul where I could always cab it there before going to bed at night. So Bread Blue, I can't even tell you. It's like it's basically a Korean bakery, which is a very specific kind of bakery, but everything in there is vegan. It is so good. Like Anthony and I would like every night our faces would be covered in chocolate <laughs> because we would get their choco bread and it was just so good. And then like the first thing we do when we woke up, oh, is there any more choco bread? I'm telling you, Bread Blue, I love them. I can't wait for them to come here to the United States. Um, let's make it happen. Y'all go to Korea, check out Bread Blue, and then let's petition to have them open up a store here in the U.S. Maru. I love Korean street food, like, you know, tteokbokki, kimbap, and all those things, but it is hard to find vegan Korean street food. Maru is an entirely vegan shop in Insadong's shopping district that boasts a menu featuring the most popular Korean street foods, including tteokbokki, kimbap, odeng. It's tucked away and it's a little hard to find, but don't give up. It's worth the trouble, trust me. Another one of my favorite spots in Korea, Hangwache. Korean vegan buffet. That's right. 
this is kind of like Korean temple food meets cafeteria food. And I know that doesn't sound good, but it's like a more accessible version of temple food, which is extremely refined and fancy. The restaurant is below ground, so you need to take a flight of stairs down and you grab a tray, add whatever you like to it, find a seat at one of the communal tables and eat to your heart's content. I loved this place so much. I mean, Korean people, like Korean food, they know how to do vegetables, like in a way that's absolutely mind-blowing. And this place definitely proves that. Plant Cafe Seoul. If you're craving a vegan burger, milkshake, or you know even a slice of cake while you're in Korea, then Plant Cafe has got you covered. With two locations and a very fun menu with a variety of selections, you'll feel right at home, away from home, at Plant Cafe. So I remember when I first went to Korea, like, Consciously. I mean, I first went to Korea when I was one year old, but when I went there when I was 10 years old, like after about two weeks of eating Korean food, I was obsessed with finding Pizza Hut and Doritos. I don't know why I picked Doritos and I needed to have American style Doritos that like I found so many bags of Korean style Doritos and, and it would just get me so angry because I could taste the difference. So if you have this like, you know, one meal out of 14 meals craving for something that reminds you of home, like American food, then Plant Cafe has definitely got you covered. Now, as to your second question, Simona, I've got bad news for you. While Korean food is easily veganizable and you can tell that from my cookbook and my blog and everything that I do the overwhelming majority of Korean food is not vegan I know it's a little counterintuitive because Korean food is so vegetable centric but they are a peninsula and as such Korean cuisine relies heavily on fermentation through fish sauce or shrimp paste and moreover, for some reason, Korean-European-style bakeries like Paris Baguette or Tous Le Jour inject dairy and eggs into everything, even like a loaf of wheat bread. That said, as Korea grows ever more vegan-friendly, you may want to zero in on the following. Korean temple cuisine. There are a lot of temples that now have restaurants at which you can sample their creations. Korean temple food is largely plant-based and extrudes animal products. Chegundam and Palwu are two spots in Seoul that offer beautiful temple cuisine. Tuk or rice cakes. And I'm not talking about like tukbokki or, you know, tukguk. Those are savory dishes and oftentimes will have meat in them. But I'm talking about the Korean desserts, like the traditional ones, which you can find at a traditional Korean bakery, not the newfangled Korean European ones like Tous Les or Patty Baguette. You can find these you know, all throughout Seoul. You can also find them as part of super fancy department stores and they are usually vegan and gluten-free. You can check the ingredients or ask them. 99% of the time, at least in my experience, there's no dairy or eggs in them. It's just like ground rice and sugar and fruit and nuts. You will certainly find a variety of vegan options. Korean rice cakes are chewy, dense, and far less sweet than American desserts. So I'm not sure if you're going to be like excited about that. Some people really like the sugary stuff. Most Korean people, they, they don't like the sugary stuff. So at least of my parents' generation. So duck is kind of our thing, and I love it. Pibimbap. Although pibimbap isn't what most Koreans will order at a restaurant, it's, it's kind of like 
you know, I always hear like when we go to um, an Italian restaurant and the native Italians will always say, we'll never order aglio e olio because that's what babies eat. It's a similar sort of thing. However, it's one of the few items on a Korean menu that might be veganizable. And I say might because there's still a good chance that the panchan, i.e. the vegetables that they use to make bibimbap, has been seasoned with fish sauce. Now, assuming their panchans are vegan, you can always ask them to omit the meat or even sub in tofu and remove the fried egg. I know for a fact that the restaurant inside the Four Seasons Seoul makes a vegan bibimbap. Tofu stew. There are a lot of tofu houses in Seoul. They're called um, tubujip or sundubujip. And these are eateries that specialize in dishes created with the versatile soybean protein. However, many of them will include meat and other animal products in their recipes. You will likely have better luck, however, at finding vegan options at a tofu house than at most other restaurants in Seoul. Again, in addition to asking them to remove all obvious animal products, e.g. meat, eggs, make sure their broth isn't made with anchovies and that their veggies are not seasoned with fish sauce. Now, Obviously, all of the above applies to Korean restaurants here in the United States as well, which is why I really need to come up with my own restaurant, guys. <laughs> I wish I had more options for you, Simona, and for anyone else who's interested in getting authentic, I'll use that word loosely, Korean cuisine here in the United States or elsewhere, but hopefully the above will give you a good start. Safe travels, and I wish you all the very best. Thanks, Simona, for submitting your question. If you have a question, make sure to hit the link below and ask Joanne. All right, we're on to updates and random things. Andiamo a Roma. Yep, in a few days, Anthony and I are going to get on a plane destined for Roma, Italy. Anthony has a lot of family in Rome, and I'm just so looking forward to seeing miei cugini italiani. I know I'm practicing my Italian. It's not that good yet, <laughs> which is really embarrassing since I've been there five times. We'll be staying at an Airbnb for the most part, so I can cook out there. And man, oh man, am I looking forward to some Italian vegetables, which I know I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about uniquely Italian vegetables. I'm just saying that the produce in Italy yeah, you can taste the difference, trust me. And I'm so excited about cooking with that difference. What I'm watching. Well, this past week, Anthony and I immersed ourselves in a true crime docudrama called The Staircase. It's based upon the real-life murder mystery involving Michael Peterson, the alleged killer, and his wife, Kathleen, the murder victim. I don't know about you, but... I vaguely remember hearing about this in the news back when it all went down in 2001, but the series was very gripping. The performances by Colin Firth and Tony Collette were excellent, and with only eight episodes, it was a relatively low lift from beginning to end. I mean, compared to a Korean drama. If you like true crime, this one's for you. Holiday gift guide. So I received so many lovely emails in response to my first ever holiday gift guide. If you do not subscribe to the newsletter, you may not have gotten a copy of the holiday gift guide. Suffice it to say, I'm so glad that those of you who responded to it and emailed me found it useful. In case you don't want to dig through your inbox for it, I'll include a link to my holiday gift guide below. Just make sure to bookmark it for future reference. 
what I'm cooking. Well, in case you maybe haven't guessed it already, I'm making some kimchi. <laughs> I'll include a link to my kimchi YouTube video, which takes you step-by-step through the recipe that's in my cookbook in the show notes below. And now we are at Parting Thoughts. Yesterday, I bonked. I was scheduled to run 14 miles, the longest distance I would have run since February, to cap off my biggest week of mileage since I started running again after recovering from injury earlier this year. But between two consecutive nights of suboptimal sleep and a reckless miscalculation of the necessary pre-run calories, it just wasn't in the cards. By mile 10, I could no longer ignore the gnawing in my stomach that started back at mile three, and I knew that the dates I'd stuffed into the back pocket of my shorts weren't going to cut it. By mile 11, pumping legs transformed into churning cement, and I finally pulled over, leaned against a stump of wood along the beach, and focused on not vomiting. I texted Anthony, who was supposed to meet me when I finished, that I'd be wrapping up a little earlier than planned. I sometimes make the mistake of tying my value as a runner, athlete, even human, to whether or not I successfully complete all the miles in the Excel spreadsheet that constitutes my training plan. Whether it's the swagger that attends the culmination of a tough workout, grueling long run, or a grinding week of mileage, or the self-flagellation that ensues the instant I step off that path so much as 0.1 mile early, Removing my ego from the process can sometimes be challenging. This isn't surprising, I guess. It takes some level of ego, a fake-it-till-you-make-it attitude, to push past the boundaries we create for ourselves, to believe we can actually do things that are really, really hard. But our ability to do really, really hard things is neither limitless nor, more significantly, linear. I follow this runner on Instagram, and I think she goes by Miss Space Cadet Runner. I'll include a link to her account below. She has made herself famous by posting these ridiculously hilarious videos of her running outfits, thoughts from the corn-ridged roads of somewhere in rural America, and her many misadventures with yoga. She is an endless source of quirky runspiration, effectively deploying self-deprecation to prove that running isn't exclusively reserved for track stars, fitness models, and influencers. She posted a short video while walking during a turkey trot, proclaiming that instead of, quote, staying hard a la David Goggins, she was going to stay turkey. <laughs> but yesterday, she posted a video that was a little different from the usual fare. The typical irony in her voice was still present, but it was weighed down with something that resembled fatigue. Congratulations, we made it through the week. In her caption, she revealed the source of some of her weariness. I battled some seasonal sadness and zero motivation, but forced myself to three yoga classes and stuck to my training. Our ability to show up for our family, our friends, and most importantly, ourselves is a direct function of training and reserving for life's most formidable tests. In other words, 
knowing when we can push ourselves a little bit more and knowing when we need to pull back, cut our run short and stay turkey. While there can definitely be something empowering about staying hard and sticking to a training schedule, even while struggling with the ennui that sometimes materializes out of the blue or maybe not so out of the blue, it's important to guard against devaluing ourselves when we, quote, fail to meet our goals because of a sudden onset of inexplicable sadness, grief, or burnout. Not because we're weak, but because we're smart. After all, we don't take one step in front of the other simply to walk or run in and of itself, but to get to a finish line. What good is any of it if we arrive at that finish line having burnt through the capacity to celebrate it? As I jogged up the hill to the grassy knoll that promised the end of an incomplete long run, I spied Anthony about 30 yards ahead taking pictures of the ocean. It occurred to me then that this was the weekend he was supposed to have run the California International Marathon. He dropped out a couple weeks ago after several weeks of unaccountable levels of fatigue during his runs. Thus, instead of flying to Sacramento for his first marathon in nearly three years after six months of dedicated training, he drove me all the way to Santa Barbara, hung out alone at some random cafe for two hours and then spent 20 minutes standing in the soft mist to make sure he could wrap me in a huge towel as soon as I hit 13.0 miles. In that moment, I decided that instead of spending the day feeling bad about bonking, I was gonna eat some pasta and sourdough with a man I loved. Sometimes, it isn't so much where the finish line is at, but the person you are when you cross it. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button. If you haven't already, leave a comment and a rating below. If you found something particularly inspiring about this episode, maybe relatable about this episode, please go ahead and share it with your friends, your colleagues, your family, your loved ones, even on social media. All of those things matter so very much to us. In the meantime, until next week, from Italia, I hope you have a wonderful, beautiful, joyful day. Music.